Well, good morning. Today we are continuing our sermon series we started a, a few weeks ago uh, as we work our way through Romans chapter 8. It's a fantastic passage in the scripture where the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in Rome at the time. And we've been discovering that the lessons that he had for them also apply to us and are relevant for us today as we live our lives here in the 21st century. Perhaps you've seen the movie uh, A River Runs Through It. Maybe many of you have. And it's based upon the novel by the, the same title. Uh, the story is of a McLean family. They live in Montana in the early 20th century. And the father of the family is a Presbyterian minister. He's stern, but he's loving. The mother is supportive and encouraging, and they have two sons. The oldest son is Norman. He's the narrator, tells the story. And they have a younger son named Paul. We meet the McLean family for the first time early in the movie when the boys are young. And they're squirming in the front row while their dad is up front preaching. We watch them grow up through childhood, through the teenage years. We watch them as they transition into adulthood. And then Norman, the older of the two, goes off to college. He wants to become a writer and a professor. And now Norman is quite a contrast from his younger, son, younger brother, Paul. Norman is cautious. He's studious. He's very careful. Whereas Paul is the polar opposite. He's a daredevil. Uh, he's a ladies' man. He's got a quick wit. He's got a winning smile. Those are the main characters in the movie. But really, the, the, the true protagonist, the true main character in the story is this river. This river that runs through their part of Montana. You see, the river seems to be the focal point of their family life. And everything significant, a lot of significant things in the movie, seem to be centered around the river. For example, Sundays in the afternoon after church, after lunch, the father would walk with the two sons along the banks of the river. And he'd turn over rocks. He'd teach them about the world. He would teach them about life. He would teach them about the God who made it all. The river would be where the boys would run after school, after the studies, to fish. It's where they built their, their friendship, but also a sibling rivalry as they learned to catch trout. And when it time, came time for these uh, two teenage boys, as it often is for teenagers, they, they wanted to kind of establish themselves as, as men, and so they, they took a death-defying ride down some rapids on a, a boat that they stole. It was on that river that young Paul became the finest fly fisherman in the territory. And when Norman comes back from college to kind of search for himself and rediscover his roots, it's to the river that he goes first with his brother to fish. Now, like a lot of families, the McLean family knew what it was to, to fail and to succeed, to laugh and to cry, to fight, to see change, to have disappointment. But the river was the one constant. It was always, always there. You know, I would like to suggest this morning that there is a river that runs through our world and runs through the lives of every believer. And that river is the purpose of God. We read about just a minute ago, Stephanie read from the passage. There's two verses. I want to read them again. They're very short. But this is, in a nutshell, God's purpose for us as his children. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That is the purpose of God for each one of us. Now, you know, it's good to know that God has a purpose in this world because, after all, the world sometimes can be a very confusing, challenging, difficult, even awful place in which to live. 
The truth is, is we've all had valleys in life that we've had to walk. Maybe this morning you're, you find yourself in the middle of one. I don't know. It could be uh, impending death because of a sickness. It could be depression. It could be divorce, financial problems, problems at work, loneliness, maybe a strained relationship with somebody you love. We all have valleys that we have to walk through in life. Now, if you were with us last week, you might remember that um, we touched upon how the world in which we live is not the way that God intended. We know what God, what Paul means uh, earlier last week. We looked at the, the preceding verses to this passage where Paul talks about the world creation, the universe itself, how it is groaning to be released from pain. Uh, because in a sense, it's not the way that God designed. We know what that feels like, don't we? At times we yearn and long to be something that we're not, that we know we should be. It's painful. We groan. We, we desire to be something or somebody different. Now, to be sure, there, along with being sometimes an awful world, it's also a wonderful world. It's God's creation after all, right? He put us in this place to enjoy it, to enjoy each other. And there are a lot of wonderful things about being in this world. But the truth is, is that this world is not the best of all possible worlds. Ask the people of Syria, for example, who find their homes and their lives, their children being shattered by terrorism and by violence and by fighting. Ask people maybe in a third world country who don't have enough food to feed their children. Stop anybody walking out of family court or, or a welfare office or out of a funeral home. Ask them if they think it's a wonderful world. See what answer you get. This is not what God had in mind from the beginning. God created this wonderful world, we're told, in the book of Genesis. And it says, when he created the world, he said, this is good. And then it says he created us in his image, male and female. And he said, this is good. You see, his intention was that men and women and children would enjoy his world and would fellowship with him forever in all the splendor of his wonder and his love and the beauty of the world. But we also know from Genesis that what? That we as human beings created in his image, chose otherwise, right? We thought it best to go our own way, to part company with the God who designed it all. And so sin enters the world along with heartache and disease and death. And the world that God made to be a beautiful garden, an oasis, a place of joy and, and beauty and creativity, now becomes a wilderness that's difficult and challenging and unpredictable and hard. But the Bible teaches us that there is a river that runs through the wilderness. And that river is called the purpose of God. And the purpose of God is to restore this world to its original splendor, to redeem sinful humanity, to rescue us from death, and to enable us to experience the glorious possibilities for which we are created. That's the purpose of God. And God is always working to accomplish that purpose. Now, it would be helpful for us to make a distinction between a reason and a purpose. Let me explain. Sometimes when bad things happen, what do we say? Well, God has his reasons. Or there's a reason for everything. Or everything works out for the best. And we mean well when we say that, don't we? We're, we're, we're doing our best to try to make sense of what's happened. Um, trying to justify it so that we can live with it somehow to fit it into our framework of how things are supposed to be and how things work. But a reason for everything, I'm not sure 
I can agree with that necessarily. Stick with me. A reason implies a a simple cause and effect relationship and also an underlying motive that makes logical sense out of everything that happens. Reason looks to justify every event as good and worthwhile and meaningful and significant. Things don't just happen, we say. They're done for a reason. Tell me, though, who is responsible for cancer? A horrible disease that destroys our bodies and takes loved ones from us before their time? Who's responsible for that? Is it Satan, the destroyer? Is it, do we bear some responsibility because of you know, maybe pollution or choices we make regarding what we eat or ingest or drink, how we treat our bodies? Or, of course, is, is it God? Because God, after all, is sovereign, right? He's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving. Who's responsible? What's the logical explanation for a stray bullet to hit a a toddler in the chest or for a car to jump a curb and run into a crowd or for a disgruntled employee to shoot up an office? What's a justifiable motive for mass starvation or child abuse or for the annihilation of a people group because of ethnic hatred and strife? A reason for everything? I'm afraid it's not as simple as that, where every effect can be traced to a logical cause. There are too many forces loose in this universe, too many factors colliding with calamitous results. First of all, of course, there's Satan, right? The hymn writer says this, His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth, there is not his equal. The Bible describes Satan as a, as a lion who's prowling around looking for prey to harm and destroy and kill. So that's one force, obviously, at work in our world. Another is we live in a fallen world, right? A world that's not as it should be. And so floods happen and hurricanes happen and droughts happen. Natural disasters and of course, we have to acknowledge our responsibility. We're, we're in this world. We're not who we should be. We're sometimes greedy, hateful, angry, vengeful, lazy, jealous. And of course, there's God. We can't leave him out of the factor, out of the equation. God is there too, and he knows all and sees all. But with a, such a complex interplay of forces and factors, who is to say who's responsible for what or what the justifiable reason is for a particular event. It's just not that simple. A reason for everything, maybe in some cases, but I'm not so sure in all. But this I know. This is where we can draw the distinction. There is a purpose that runs through it. The eternal purpose of God to to restore this universe to its intended splendor and to enable men and women to become the eternal, beautiful beings that we are created to be. And so when bad things happen in this world, I think it's more helpful to talk about purpose as opposed to reason. Reason, you see, looks at the isolated event. Purpose looks to the big picture. Reason is fixated on the present. Purpose looks down the road to future outcomes. Reason insists on an explanation Purpose says, let's get on with it. What is God doing in the midst of this? What's he trying to teach us? What's he going to accomplish? What is his goal in this situation? How can he redeem it? Reason hangs on to the event, yet purpose hangs on to God, who is at work in it all. You see, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, 
is about purpose, not about reasons. It doesn't say everything happens, that, ev- that everything that happens is good. It says that God works in all things, good and bad, to accomplish his purpose. There's a big difference. It's kind of the image of a strong hand of a potter, you know, and he takes a big lump of clay and it looks like nothing and he begins to shape it through strength and skill and time and pressure and, 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 and creativity and it ends up being something beautiful, you know, and, and useful. God works in all the events of our lives to shape us and mold us into the likeness of Jesus Christ, whom we are predestined to become like, to accomplish his eternal purpose. Another way of thinking of it might be, uh, might be helpful to think of it this way. Say you're a parent and, um, and your wife is pregnant and, and before the baby's even born, in your mind you've got this dream. This child is going to be an incredible athlete. And even before this child is born, you have this dream. And, and so that from day one, you begin to work with this child. You give him or her time and energy and focus. Um, you, um, you give them all the know-how you have. You provide training for them, whatever you can to help them develop their abilities. But there are other factors at work that you can't control in your child's life, right? How the coaches of his or her team develop them or play them, their strategies, their teammates, who they play with, their physical body, how they grow and develop, injuries that might happen to them, the outcomes of the games. You cannot control any of that. So what you do as a loving parent is you you take what the game dishes out, right? Successes, failures, uh, weaknesses revealed, uh, strengths, opportunities, all these things, you, you take them all together, relationship problems, you take them all together and you do your best to, to give them perspective, to help them shape it and to take advantage of whatever the opportunities are to help them develop into the person and the athlete that you hope they can become. On a much grander scale, that's how God works in our lives. God is all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, yes, but he has put parameters on himself in our world. He has limited himself for a time. And so he allows Satan to roam the earth and he gives us as his men and women created in his image free will to make choices even when they can be foolish or hurtful to us or those around us. And he works all these things together in his strong hands so that his purpose for us and our world is accomplished. In John chapter 9, remember the story, Jesus and his disciples come upon a man who's been born blind. And they, they, in essence, I'm going to paraphrase here, basically say, why is he blind? Did his parents sin? Did his parents, did he sin? Why, is he, why was he born blind? Or, or another story in Luke, 7, Luke 13, <laughs> Jesus gets news from his disciples about this tower in Siloam, a neighboring town that falls over uh, and 13 people are killed. Horrible accident. And people ask him, what happened? Why did this happen? Do these people sin? What's going on in the world? What's, what, why, what, what's going on? What's the explanation? And Jesus essentially says to both of them, you're asking the wrong question. These things happen in our world. Rather, look for the God, work of God in this, in this situation. Look for what God is going to do. Look how he'll be glorified. Look to see what his purpose is as he works to redeem these tragedies. A reason for everything, I'm not sure about that, but a purpose in everything, absolutely. And God's purpose will prevail. The Bible promises us that there's no stopping him in spite of Satan's schemes, in spite of the unpredictability of a world in which we live. 
in spite of the foolishness and even wickedness at times of us as human beings, God's purpose will be accomplished. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us. And just after these verses, which we'll look at next week, he says that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor anything in, this, in heaven or under heaven, nothing is going to separate us from the love that God has for us. And he asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he answers his own question by saying, nothing, no one. And so Paul says these words again about God's purposes. Those he foreknew, he predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses the past tense here, right? He's writing to believers in Rome, but he's also, in a sense, writing to all the believers who would come for us today. And he uses the past tense. He's so certain that you and I will be glorified and that God's purposes will be done in our lives. that He, he describes it as a done deal. It's past tense. It's, it's been accomplished. And it gives us the confidence and the truth that nothing is going to thwart God in our lives. In all things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors. And God will work in us. And in the end, we will become the people that he has created us to be. And this world will become the world that he has created it to be. There's a powerful scene that comes toward the end of the movie. A river runs through it. Um, it's, it's toward the, the end, and the boys are grown up now. And Norman, the older brother, has decided he's going to leave Montana for good. He's going to move to Chicago. He's going to become a writer and a teacher. Paul, the younger brother, is going to say, this is all he knows, this is where he feels comfortable. But, but his drinking and gambling are beginning to take a toll on his life. Father and mother are getting up in years, and it appears that the family might be beginning to spin apart. But one more time, the father and the two sons go fishing together. And after a while, Norman and his father retire early. They get a little tired, so they sit on the bank and watch the young Paul, who's out there casting his line gracefully and, and, and beautifully, and, and all of a sudden, a large trout strikes. And the fish puts up a mighty fight, and, and Paul loses his footing. He tumbles into the river, hanging on to the fish, and he hits, bounces off some boulders, and he goes under the water, and he pops up again, and finally, he comes out of the water, triumphant. And Norman and his dad stand and they cheer. And Paul stands on the riverbank holding the fish, the beautiful Montana sky behind him. His hair glistening in the sun, a huge smile on his face. And this is what Norman writes about the scene. He says, he wasn't just standing beside the river. He was suspended above the earth. I was looking at perfection. Now, I would quibble with the word perfection here. I think he was looking at glory. Let me explain. A young man at his best, a father and son together for the day, the earth at its most magnificent. There was love and joy and peace and beauty all around. Everything was the way it was supposed to do, be. Have you ever had days like that or moments like that where everything feels right in your life, your relationship? Maybe it's a family dinner, you gather or a wedding. Perhaps it's a family trip in the mountains, something where everything just feels right. It's, it's perfect and you wish you could bottle up. And, and keep it forever. But you know, it's not always going to be that way. You know that those moments are few and fleeting. So you enjoy it and soak it up as much as you can. 
someday, days like that, moments like that, will yours and mine to enjoy forever because that is God's purpose. That we should attain to the highest possibilities for which we're created. That, that as men and women in the image of Christ, that we'll be conformed more and more into the likeness of Him. That all the things that frustrate us, frustrate us about ourselves will be made whole and that we will spend eternity with the ones we love in Christ and with Him in worlds, in scenes, in beauty and love and joy beyond what we can ever imagine or experience in this world. And it will be good. And it will be very good. That is the purpose of God. That God works in all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So whatever has happened to you in the past and whatever is happening to you today and whatever the future might hold, know this. That a river runs through it, runs through your life, runs through our world. And that river is called the purpose of God. And God's purpose will be accomplished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for creating us in an image, in your image, and for a relationship with you. We thank you that though we are flawed people and there are many things about ourselves that we wish we could change at times and the world around us is not the way it should be and that frustrates us and confuses us at times. Lord, we thank you that your purpose is to make things right, to make things perfect, to, to recreate this world and to recreate us and to shape us and form us so that our time with you will be forever. And it'll be better than even the best moments of our lives. We thank you, Lord, that that is your purpose for us. We're grateful and we're humbled. So, Lord, when we get frustrated, when we fall, when things happen in the world around us, help us to have that perspective. When our reasons for what has happened don't always make sense or fall flat, help us, Lord, to cling to your purpose. We thank you, Father, for your love for us. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our final song?